0: Welcome to Taiwan Ren, where you'll hear stories of Taiwanese innovators, makers, and advocates. I'm your host, Cindy, and today we're chatting with Dr. Jenny Wang. Jenny is a Taiwanese-American psychologist who specializes in serving the Asian American community. Jenny and I chat about how our racial identities can play into psychology, what kind of cultural programming immigrants or children of immigrants can have, and strategies to talk about mental health with our very own parents. Let's dig in. Hi, Jenny. Tell us about yourself and your connection to Taiwan. So I am, I guess what I would
1: say, a 1.5 generation Taiwanese-American. So I was born in Taiwan. And I moved to the United States when I was two years old. And I feel very much connected to my Taiwanese identity in the sense that I grew up speaking Taiwanese to my father and Mandarin to my mother. They did a great job of really immersing us in a lot of the different foods and rituals and holidays and things like that, that made kind of us feel connected to Taiwan.
0: And what do you do now? I am a clinical
1: psychologist in Houston, Texas. I have a private practice in which I see predominantly Asian American clients or people of color, and work a lot with racial identity, racial trauma, and really helping people kind of understand how their Asian identity impacts mental health.
0: So what was it like for you growing up as the 1.5 generation Asian American? I guess growing up, was mental health even on your radar?
1: I would say that mental health wasn't really on my radar in a way that I could put language to. I had a sense that mental health was something that perhaps people would struggle with, but it wasn't something that I understood intimately. I think that growing up, emotions were something that were very hard to approach or even understand how to explain to people. And so I think that culturally, you don't talk about those things, right? You kind of stuff it inside and you swallow it. And so my awareness of mental health really didn't begin to take shape until I was, I guess, in college where I was a finance major and just kind of took some psychology courses for the first time and started to understand that there was a whole field where people studied this and could really create impact and help people. But I also didn't see it happening very readily where I was for Asians. And so that kind of then prompted me to consider this as a career, just because I felt as though my Asian identity was a huge part of my mental health, but often it was
0: not really discussed. Can you talk more about that? Because I haven't heard much about that topic either, where, you know, cultural identity playing into psychology. What should we know more of as, I guess, just, I don't want to say patients, as everyday people? How does racial identity or cultural identity play a role in our own mental health or psychology?
1: Yeah, so if we think about kind of cultural identity, it shapes how we see a couple things in our lives. First is it shapes how we see ourselves. Mm. It's helped shape how we see the world around us. And it also impacts kind of how we show up in our world what ways we engage, what rules we might have internalized as to how we engage. And so if cultural identity has the ability to shape perception, shape reasoning, shape judgment, then all of that has the ability to impact kind of mental health on a broader scale. I also think that in addition to kind of shaping perception and kind of how we see the world, there are different cultural practices that are heavily embedded into how we live our lives. And so we might have certain cultural values, which may have been very effective for communities in Asia, or may have been things that were prioritized, but when you are Asian diaspora or Asian immigrants, you're now living between worlds. You're living within two cultures, and so you're constantly shape-shifting or shifting your value sets based on perhaps the context that you're in. So not only does culture in its original form impact mental health, but now the culture of immigration, of having to grow up in multiple contexts, now is going to shape mental health as well. And then I think, of course, culture shapes how we even approach mental health as a topic. Asian culture is traditionally very stigmatizing towards mental health, right? A lot of my clients may not even tell their parents that they're in therapy or taking medication. And so it impacts even how much we may seek assistance or reach out for support or get the professional help that we need. And I think the downfall of that is that oftentimes we wait until our mental health status is so severe and we're in crisis until we actually engage the mental health system.
0: Mm. I just heard that Asian men specifically, it's hard for them to seek help.
1: Absolutely. I think the right cultural values of saving face, of being strong, and the whole toxic masculinity perspectives, on top of the fact that traditionally the mental health fields are predominantly women-dominated fields. And so perhaps as an Asian male, you may not want to speak to even an Asian American female. But there are not a ton of providers who might kind of fit some of those needs. But I think the culture of be strong and swallow it is very much a part of kind of the difficulty with Asian men seeking support.
0: Mm, Yeah, that makes sense. Even last weekend, I was at a family gathering and someone had said, don't cry to another little boy. And so, yeah, I think still very much relevant today. I know that you're focusing on the Asian American community right now. I wonder, was there a catalyst or a trigger that started that focus for you?
1: Yeah, I would say that in graduate school, I don't know that I was thinking, oh, when I finish, I'll work predominantly with Asian American communities. I honestly don't think it was until I moved back to Texas and to Houston, Mm -hmm. where there's a predominant or a larger Asian American population. And I think it happened organically in that being... Asian American clients just started seeking me out and specifically saying, I reached out to you because I wanted an Asian American therapist. And I think that as my practice expanded, it just became apparent that the demand or the need for mental health services that are culturally reverent, that are culturally appropriate for Asian communities is so high. And especially with the recent year and a half, two years of pandemic and everything going on for the Asian American community, it has really kind of pushed mental health into the forefront. I think of a lot of people's minds.
0: Mm -hmm. So you mentioned, especially for immigrants, there's an added layer to, I guess, the way we think and we behave. I'm curious as an immigrant myself, what are some cultural programming we should be more aware of in our daily lives?
1: There are so many, it's hard to know where to start. I think one of the most important is the idea that emotions are bad. Mm -hmm. I think that when we think about mental health, you cannot talk about mental health without acknowledging emotions and how they impact us. And so I think one of the things that I am constantly having to help people understand is that emotions are not good or bad. They actually are just alert systems that evolutionarily our bodies and our minds have built in. And so if you think about it, if emotions are just an alert system, it is only a cue. It's like a red flag. Hey, there's something important here. There's something that you might want to investigate further. I think what happens is that because emotions can be overwhelming, they can be scary, they can be hard to manage because most of us don't learn those skills as children, which is kind of the time that you would hope people would learn it we then move towards avoidance or suppression of emotion. Mm-hmm. And I always say that when we don't express or even just allow ourselves to feel our emotions, they get pushed underground and then they come out sideways. Ugh,
0: this is my life. <laughs> <laughs> right?
1: Right. So in the sense that maybe you're angry about something, but you grew up in a household in which anger wasn't really allowed, especially from the younger generation. And so you're used to holding your anger in and not being able to acknowledge it and process it and develop awareness of what that anger might be trying to tell you. And so then it gets pushed underground until some point where something else totally unrelated triggers you. Mm -hmm. And you unleash all that pent-up emotion in a different situation. And so I think that that's one of the main things I hope our community will begin to unlearn, is that we can approach our emotions differently and that emotions aren't the threat to mental health. It's how we relate to our emotions that can threaten our mental health. I think another kind of cultural element to consider, especially as immigrants, is this idea of a scarcity mentality. This idea that our parents often come here with very little resources, very little social support and very limited community. And so this feeling that we will never be safe enough, we will never have enough, we will never acquire enough stability to be able to rest and have ease and prioritize mental health, right? This idea that we're constantly Striving and in the struggle, and that perhaps we need to function from a perspective of perfection. Yeah. Everything must be done perfectly. We are always striving for excellence, even when it may not really matter. Because we all have things in our lives where, like, it doesn't require 150% for you to do (laughs) an acceptable, right? Job. But sometimes we feel like we need to function that way in all areas of our lives. And so I'm not saying that the pursuit of excellence or wanting to be successful is a negative thing. Mm -hmm. That is something that is natural and understandable as to why we would want to achieve that. But I think that how we approach those goals can be really different. Mm -hmm. And scarcity mentality kind of is driven by a fear of not enough, a fear of not being enough. Whereas perhaps we can pursue our goals from a place of interest, passion, spark, excitement, that those can be the drivers of the things that we pursue. So, those are just a couple of things that come to mind. There are many other narratives, but I think that those do impact us significantly.
0: When you mentioned scarcity, I've never thought about that before, but it does make me think of all the hours I put into school and it's, painful, but you're sort of normalizing the pain in a way that pain's good because you're getting somewhere. So it's almost the means justifies the end, but then you're kind of miserable the whole time. (laughs) But yeah, I agree. I think today's educational approach as well, right, is using students' natural interests and passions to motivate them rather than fear of not graduating or not getting a job. So I can see that on a broader scale. Okay. So here's another question for you. And I feel bad. This is all for my own research now. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> I started looking at therapy last year, but my mother's reaction was confusion. That of confusion, for sure. <laughs> she didn't understand professional advice or seeking professional help. Her response to me was, I understand you're not happy, but why not talk about it with your friends? So I do see this first accepting that we ourselves need help, but also getting the older generation potentially to understand this need. What would you advise about talking to the older generation about this kind of topic?
1: Yeah, I get this question a lot because I think our generation or the younger generation is perhaps much more open to mental health. And so they're seeking out services for the first time. And I think there are multiple kind of things at play. I think the question of, well, why can't you just talk to us? Or why can't you talk to your friends about why you're unhappy? That I think comes from a couple of factors. One is just that some of us grew up thinking or being told, don't tell other people about the bad stuff about our lives, right? Don't tell other people about how our parents might fight or don't tell your friends about how you're not happy with things within our family. That's our business, Mm -hmm. And so why would you air out our dirty laundry in public? And so I think that feels that way, that when we talk to a therapist or a professional, we're airing out our dirty laundry to somebody who's a stranger. And in Asian culture, there's so much emphasis on these spheres, right? These family units or community units in which there are expectations of maybe loyalty, maybe of secrecy, of protecting, the reputation of those spheres of our lives. And so it's understandable that when somebody says, well, I'm going to be going out and talking to a stranger about all these intimate and really hard and painful things that that would bring up concern. Another thing is, I think it comes from a lack of understanding of the value of therapy or the helpfulness of it. Yeah, And I think that That also makes sense why that might be the perspective, because when you think about when our parents may have come to the United States, there were not nearly as many Asian American providers, and there was not nearly as much cultural awareness of the different ways in which cultures engage in different aspects of life, right? So for example, some providers maybe who are outside of the Asian American community might look at an Asian family and say, oh, they have no boundaries. They're so enmeshed, right? They're so into everybody's lives in the family. And they might think of that as a negative. They might say that's not good for mental health. Whereas I think that it's much more gray, right? It's not black and white. And within Asian culture, I also believe that that's one of the strengths, that we are so intimately connected in ways that we are there as support. We do offer things to our family members that maybe other cultures don't. For example, a lot of Asian parents will let their 40-year-old kid live in their house for free. That's not out of the scope of what you know is normal because they do care for their children in very specific and intimate ways. And so I think that it makes sense that our parents might say, well, I don't know. I don't know that I trust mental health treatment. What are they doing? What are they doing or telling you maybe that's going to run opposed to our cultural values or the aspects of our family that we still very much value. So there's a sense of mistrust there too that creates a barrier. And so when I encourage young people to talk about mental health, I think there are a couple of things to think about. First is that unless your parents are paying for therapy or they are driving you there or they are instrumental in you seeking out therapy. yeah you may not always need to tell them you're in therapy. That's interesting. You might actually do some work in therapy first before you reveal that to them. Another thing is if you are at an age, maybe you're in high school or you're on your parents' insurance, and so they're going to know that you're going to therapy, it's really important that when we talk to them about our mental health to be specific. And when I say specific, I mean specific about impact on functioning, because I think so much of the impact of mental health can be spoken in really abstract terms. Like, I just feel sad. I feel depressed. I feel anxious. But to a generation where they're not educated or aware of what these terms even mean, they're just like, stop complaining. You're being lazy, right? But When we can be specific and say, you know what, my depression makes it so hard for me to even get out of bed. It's hard for me to focus to take my exams. It makes me not want to see any of my friends. I don't even have the energy to have a conversation. Notice how that brings it from a very abstract term into very specific, tangible impacts that our parents can then understand better. Now, I'm not saying that when you speak of it in specific terms that they'll get it or they'll suddenly say, oh yeah, we're open to mental health, but hopefully it gives them something more specific and tangible to relate to. Because the reality is that a lot of our parents have likely struggled with mental health as well. They've just never disclosed it or discussed it or gotten help. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes that may even create lines of communication that didn't exist before. Maybe your mom is like, yeah, I know what that was like because when I was in Taiwan, I felt that way too during a season of my life. And so I always encourage specific kind of examples like that. And then I always encourage, if you're going to talk to your parents, give them specific feedback as to what you need help in. So I think The hardest thing as a parent, because I'm a parent now, is to know that our child has a problem and not know what to do. It can be very anxiety-inducing. It can make us feel very overwhelmed and helpless. But if we come to our parents and we say, okay, I'm feeling depressed. This is specifically how it's impacting me. And I would like to do this. I'd like to see a therapist. Can I use your insurance to get medication? This is what I would like to do. It gives them now specific things that they can do and problem solve so that now we're moving towards action and not just sitting together in the discomfort of saying there's a problem and we don't know how to solve it. Now, this assumes that the child or the young adult is pretty well-versed in mental health, that they know there's a problem, that they know how to communicate it, and then they know how to address it. And luckily now, because of the internet, because of podcasts like this, there's so much information about mental health very generally that I would encourage you to consider, you know, just looking at some websites. Mental Health Coalition is a great nonprofit that has all these resources for mental health for all different communities. And when we are able to, in a way, educate ourselves about the mental health system, it helps us then to invite our parents into that journey with us.
0: Oh, that's great. I wish, obviously, I had this advice earlier because as you were telling me that, I remember saying to my mother, I'm unhappy, and the response is always, you have too much time on your hands. (laughs) Or she'll give me a (laughs) She'll be like, you're already really happy. You just don't know it. (laughs) (laughs) But still feels great. Yeah, I think totally true of being specific and being able to maybe educate them as well. So I recently talked to her about my attachment style issues, mm-hmm. which is avoidant. And, you know, a lot of it does come from my own parents. <laughs> so not blaming them, but also maybe hopefully letting them know how they deal with things, impact how I deal with things later on. And I thought about actually family therapy with my mom and my brother. I don't know your thoughts on that.
1: Yes. I think that it can be really powerful. And I was going to kind of mention that A lot of my clients say that when they begin individual therapy, whether or not they go on to family therapy, some of them start to notice changes in their families. And the reason is because when we're in therapy, we start to become aware of our dynamics, our attachment styles, our ways of engaging. And we now have the power to show up differently, right? We're no longer trapped in these old patterns. And so when we show up differently, It invites the people around us to also respond differently. And so as we maybe are no longer as angry, perhaps, in our approach with our parents, they notice, ooh, something's different. We used to fight all the time around this topic, but now we can actually talk about it, right, without getting upset. And it starts to change and, in a way, implicitly start to influence how our family engages. I always say this, that therapy in general is not for everyone. And I want to fully name that. Now, do I believe most people could gain some benefit if the therapist was a good fit and it was an approach that worked well? Probably. But I think there are also some people where the talking and the confrontation that can occur in therapy can be too overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And that maybe some people may never really respond well to therapy. But setting that aside, I'm a huge fan of family therapy work because it is really different than individual therapy in the sense that you're now talking about patterns and dynamics and how you're almost in a way pulled into a dance with different people in your life. And now you're aware of that dance and you can decide to sidestep. You can decide to work around these dynamics. And when one part of the dynamic shifts the other one does as well. And so, yeah, I think that would be really exciting to see kind of what comes from that. Because I think that, especially within Asian culture, there's so much left unsaid between people.
0: Yeah,
1: So much that's swept under the rug, so much that's not processed. And family
0: therapy is a protected space in which that can occur. I constantly think back to this quote I read recently, which is, When we grow up, we're also watching our parents grow up. And that's partly why I'm interested in family therapy because I do think my parents would benefit from it as well. Absolutely.
1: And also think about what you're doing there. You're shifting dynamics between you and your parents, but you're also going to change how you show up as a parent one day if you decide, right, to have your own children. Mm -hmm. And so the effect of this work will change generations that follow us as well.
0: <laughs> I'm like, okay, now I'm going to look at my insurance benefits. <laughs> and then I guess, Joni, you mentioned something earlier that really caught my attention, which is therapy is not for everyone. And that makes me think, not only, I guess, is it not for everyone, some people are just not ready for therapy. So what advice might you have for these people who they're starting to get more in tune with their emotions or they want to try something new to improve their lives, but they're not quite ready for the full-on therapist. Mm
1: -hmm. I think what's really great is that now mental health has become much more mainstream. And so there are plenty of mental health professionals who write books about topics like attachment, topics like boundaries, about communication, about emotion regulation, So one great way to just start learning even the language and the words to describe some of your experiences is to read. And if that's something that you really enjoy, then I would encourage that. A simple way to really start to kind of develop the introspection that happens in therapy is to journal. For a lot of people, the act of journaling can be extremely therapeutic And they've actually found that people who journal have improvements, not only in mental health indicators, but also physical health improvements. And so if you're not ready for the kind of face-to-face engagement of therapy, being able to write and express emotions and kind of think about how you show up or different dynamics through writing can be really powerful. And then I would say that one of the things that I think is really important, especially as people of color living in different countries than our homelands is that our people, our cultural people have had healing practices for generations. And so something to consider is, can we look back into our families and our ancestral practices and think about how they engaged in growth and healing? So one thing that I think about, right, is how Asian cultures are, you know, in Taiwan, we address grieving when somebody dies. And how do we memorialize people who have passed? There's that Sao Mu Jie, and there's different things in which we, in a way, have ritualized the act of grieving. We do it in community We do it yearly, if not regularly, where we go and we are with our ancestors as a way of processing that grief, of acknowledging that grief, and being able to find the social support to move through that. And so I think that culturally, there are ways in which people or our people have tried to heal and do heal. That often are lost in translation because we've come to a country that prioritizes a version of mental health that is very Western or Eurocentric. And so I would say that if you're not ready to maybe approach kind of Western therapy ideas of healing, what about Eastern medicine? What about acupuncture? What about meditation work, right? Which has Eastern roots. Mm -hmm. Those are also healing practices that have led our people for
0: generations. My mind started spinning about what are healing practices in Taiwanese culture? I have to be more observant. (laughs) That is so true though.
1: Yeah. And I think that's the grief that comes with being Asian diaspora or Asian immigrants is that if we were still living in Taiwan, we would be steeped in that. Perhaps we'd be living near grandparents. We would have grown up with them. We would have internalized all of these kind of practices that they've inherited from their parents and the parents before them. But because we live here and often we're here with our nuclear family or small groups of our family members, we get cut off from all of that ancestral knowledge that I think is a loss.
0: Yeah, that's so true. I think food is the part that kind of does stay with you. It's tangible. You can see it, you can taste and experience it, but it's so true. There are these rights that maybe get lost and we're not even aware. So you talked about reading up on maybe some literature. You're writing a book yourself. Can you tell us about your book?
1: Yes, so my book is called Permission to Come Home and it will be hopefully published May, 2022 by Grand Central Publishing. And I say this not in a kidding sort of way, but it feels like it is my love letter to the Asian American community or Asian diaspora community. It is not a book filled with scientific research or kind of any of that. It is much more, we talked about earlier, a book about unlearning or reprogramming some of the ways that we show up and think As Asian Americans and challenging some of those, questioning some of those, and encouraging us to dig deeper into different ways of showing up or thinking about our lives. And I guess each chapter is one area of unprogramming, I guess you could say, that I personally have had to work through and I've had to help my clients work through in order to move us into a place of more empowerment, more authenticity, and more connection. Because I think ultimately the goal of the book is to be able to help us come home to ourselves and come home to our culture and our community in a world where we've grown up perhaps being told that our culture was not enough, that it was foreign, that it didn't have value. And I think that in a way, as children of immigrants, we are always in a process of finding our way back home because we have not been in a way home in the way that most people would think about it. And so most of my motivation and the grounding thought for me in writing this book is that it is the book that I hope my children will be able to have as one day they grow up to be young Asian American adults and they're navigating this world. Ultimately, it is my gift to them that hopefully they will be able to gain just some understanding and be able to work through some of these topics on their own.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. I know you're still working on it, but what's your favorite chapter so far? That's a good question.
1: I would say that the permission to say no is a chapter about boundaries. And I think that that is one of the most important skills that we need to learn as human beings but also as Asian Americans or Asian diaspora. And so that I would say is one of the most important chapters in my mind. But I would say that the one that has been most fun to write perhaps is Permission to Take Up Space. This idea that so much of my upbringing and my messaging was stay small, be invisible. Got it. Be too loud, too boastful, too shiny. And I think that in minimizing ourselves, it's come at great cost. Mm-hmm. So the chapter is talking about how we can perhaps rework some of our fears of being visible and seen and be able to really step into our power as individuals, as Asian Americans, as immigrants mm-hmm. in the spaces that we live in.
0: Oh, I'm so excited to read it. <laughs> Even just knowing your chapter titles would help me so much. <laughs> so you've had your private practice for a while now, and then now you're culminating some of that work in this book. I wonder, have you thought back to how this work end-to-end has sort of evolved your relationship with Taiwan or your Asian American identity?
1: I think that for so long, I... Relied so much on code switching, right? And we talked about this before, where this idea that there are times where I try to act as American or white as possible, and then times in which I was able to like almost set down the armor and just be my full Taiwanese self. And I think that I finally, in understanding and working through my own racial trauma and my own racial identity, is that I'm both. Mm-hmm. and I'm fully both. And my wholeness as both is what empowers me the most. And so I think that what once was Taiwan in my mind as this faraway land that I only visited every few years and <laughs> felt a connection very strongly, but couldn't claim because I never grew up there. I think I finally am moving into a place where I'm fully claiming my Taiwanese lineage and all the things that I so love about the culture and the people and the country and really integrating that as part of my story and seeing that as a strength, not as a weakness.
0: Uh, You know, I super relate to that because as someone who grew up wanting to be very Canadian or immersed in the local culture and not being exposed to a lot of Taiwanese people outside of my family and also only visiting Taiwan for a few years, I've always felt like a fake Taiwanese. To be honest, hence why I started this project. But I think, yeah, maybe there's a chapter in there, but just kind of acknowledging that this is my story and I'm not less Taiwanese than other people, like you're saying, and just being okay with that, accepting that. That's what makes me unique and true to who I am.
1: I feel that as well. And I think that as our community is working through everything that has happened in terms of anti-Asian violence and racism. I hope that it is the catalyst that helps us realize that if we can own that part of ourselves and claim that part of ourselves, Mm -hmm. it only serves to strengthen us and our community.
0: To follow Dr. Jenny Wang and her mental health tips, you can find her on IG at Asians for Mental Health. Remember to rate, subscribe, and tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Taiwan you.